Welcome to the football pod. My name is Konstantin Eckner. And my name is Abel Mesarosh. We're glad you've decided to check out our new podcast. But before we dive right into our first show, we should address a few things. We're two football journalists that hope you share our love for the game and football analysis. While there are many great shows out there already, we believe there's room for one more. That's why we've launched the Football Pod to bring you some of the most interesting people in the sport, people who shape the landscape of football on or off the pitch. We sincerely hope you like what you hear and enjoy the discussions. For now, you can find our show on soundcloud.com slash thefootballpod and on YouTube. Just search for The Football Pod. Very soon you will also be available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and Google Podcast. So make sure to subscribe wherever you like. If you want to support us, please visit patreon.com slash thefootballpod. Now our first guest is none other than Grand Wall, US soccer journalist who spent over two decades at Sports Illustrated. So let's not wait any longer. We give you Grand Wall. Yeah, Grant, thanks for joining. Um, I mean, a lot of people know you from your time at Sports Illustrated. I think you're over two decades there. Um, but could you keep us and our listeners keep you uh, give an update on what you're up to now? Yeah, first, thanks for having me on your show. Um, I'm pretty busy these days. Um, I have a, a twice-weekly podcast uh, called Football with Grant Wall, where I interview some of the most prominent figures in the sport, both in the United States, but also outside the United States, including Europe. So uh, those are usually interviews, 20, 30 minutes. Uh, I try and have about half of them be Americans, men's and women's, and then uh, half be global. So we've had Jurgen Klopp, Lothar Mateus, um, Roberto Martinez, uh, Henrik Mkhitaryan, an interesting group. And I really enjoyed doing those types of interviews because they're, they're not soundbite interviews. You can get into really, you know, long discussions, which, which I enjoy. And then uh, I have a podcast series coming out uh, on November 17th. It launches and it's about the career of Freddie Adu. And it's going to be seven episodes. And I covered Freddie Adu back in 2003 and 2004 when he was, one of the most, um, uh, one of the biggest young emerging players in the world at the time. And people thought he could be the first superstar American men's soccer player. And he became the, at 14 years old, the highest paid player in MLS and he didn't make it. Uh, and, and so this podcast series is interviewing Freddie Adu, but also uh, about two dozen other people uh, to tell the story of what happened and, uh, and also to sort of look at the, this idea, our obsession as a culture with young sports genius, and at least the potential for that. I had also done, uh, our first stories on LeBron James for Sports Illustrated when he was 17 years old, a year before I was writing about Freddie Adu. So this has been a really fun project for me to do. I remember reading those, like, because it was, I remember, I was there for, like, the Freddie Adu part, and I remember actually reading yeah. the, the LeBron one, so I can't, I can't wait to, to check that out, because, I mean, it's, it's gonna, I, somebody needs to tell those stories, and, and you're, you're obviously 
the best person to to do it. So I'll be really, really uh, looking forward to it. And I mean, already subscribing to uh, the football pod with, with you. So uh, hopefully um, this is going to be tremendous as well. I mean, I, I think also what is interesting about Freddie Edu is that like now when you have these Martin Oedegaards and maybe now Yusufa Mukuku at, at Borussia Dortmund, like these young guys who are coming up when they are 15 or 16 and when, when they are really hyped, some people who are pessimistic or, you know, want to put uh, on the brakes a little bit, they then bring up Freddie Edu as an example because they say, look at what happened to Freddie Edu and like the hype he had when he was 14 um, and then what happened to him. So, you know, be patient and be be cautious uh, when you make these predictions about how their careers will go. So I think it's great to tell the story about Freddie Edu, actually. I think so. And also, I had questions in this podcast series for myself as a journalist. You know, did I do too much to make Freddie Adu sound like he was going to be more successful than he ended up being? But I also get a lot of credit still for writing our first LeBron James cover story when he was 17 and and he made it. So like the idea of some phenoms are, are going to make it, some won't. And I, I've, I'm really fascinated by the factors that go into determining who makes it and who doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the reason we invited you is because of, of because of your knowledge uh, about U.S. soccer, U.S. football. Um, and especially we wanted to talk to you about uh, a very particular subject. And that's the Americans that played in Germany and the German Bundesliga and in German football in general. Um, and... I myself, I remember when I was really young, um, watching the Bundesliga around 2000, 2002, um, around that time. Um, and when there were, when there was a substantial number of Americans playing in the Bundesliga, um, I remember Clint Mathis with the Mohawk, <laughs> kind of. Um, I mean, I remember him especially because of the Mohawk, because I asked my parents to get one. Um, they said no. <laughs> Surprisingly, I guess. Um, but I remember him playing for Hannover and Stephen Gerundolo, Landon Donovan, Craig Berhalter. So there was, there was a number of Americans there. And um, of course, we have also a number of Americans today. And I think there's um, a certain connection between the two countries. And Abel and myself, we are covering the Bundesliga um, a lot for various outlets. So I think that's why we also wanted to invite you to, to talk about um, the Americans in the Bundesliga. And I mean, because before we maybe talk about the current situation and the talents that are now in Germany, um, you you've been covering U.S. soccer for a long time. And um, what are your what do you remember about like the period around? I mean, two thousand maybe afterwards about these Americans and uh, these Americans and the Americans playing in the in the Bundesliga and um, especially because I mean there were a few that did quite well for themselves. I think Craig Berhalter, for instance, at, at Energie Cottbus. But there were also a lot of players that failed um, and then maybe returned to, to the U.S. Or I mean, failed is a hard word, but they didn't achieve what they wanted to achieve. So what, are your, what, what, is, what do you remember about that time and about the Americans here in Germany and Central Europe? I mean, at that time, you still had a lot of the, even the top American soccer players went to college, university in the United States. And so they were moving at a later age to Germany than we see today, because today the, the best young American players don't go to college and play in that system anymore. Um, so a, a lot of guys like Clint Mathis 
they had they went to college for several years, then they started an MLS. And if they did well, like Clint Mathis did in MLS, then came the possibility of going to the Bundesliga. But you were still going over, I don't know the exact age that Mathis went, but he was, I'm sure, in his 20s. Um, and, you know, some players like Mathis, I thought a very talented player, obviously, but, you know, he didn't stick very long. And I noticed early on that he didn't really try to learn the language of German. <laughs> and that to me has always been an indicator of how much success in the long term someone might have in Germany in terms of how many years did they stay there. And Clint Mathis didn't stay that long. Um, Steve Cherundolo, on the other hand, uh, he went to college for a couple years, but not all four years at Portland. And then basically was at Hanover the entire, his entire playing career. And early on, you could see that things were going well for him on the field. He was earning playing time, but he also learned the language. He was fluent very quickly and became just a, a part of the Hanover community. And I was always really impressed by Chirondolo and how he was able to do that. Um, and then there were, you know, some guys in between, you know, Greg Burhalter had a few decent years, had some longevity there. Um, and, and Landon Donovan was sort of the new type of player, American player in the sense that he didn't go to college. So he was still in his teens when he went to Germany and it was pretty apparent early on that Landon Donovan just prioritized lifestyle maybe more than other players in like over maybe the soccer itself, because he clearly had more talent than the other Americans. And yet he wasn't happy at Leverkusen and, and fairly quickly uh, pushed to go back to the United States. And, you know, in the end, Landon Donovan had a, you know, a very productive career in MLS, a very productive career for the U.S. men's national team. But he went back briefly to Leverkusen, wanted to get out. Uh, and then he ended up having a, a couple of loans at Everton. But other than that, played his club football. I guess he had a loan at Bayern briefly yeah, yeah. under under Klinsman. Um, but, you know, he just didn't. It didn't work for him in in Europe, and I think that had a pretty big influence on on a, a number of young Americans who decided to stay in MLS uh, as Donovan did. And it's just interesting for me to compare that to say many years down the road with Christian Pulisic having a similar influence. I've been told by today's young Americans, and that they want to be like Christian Pulisic and go to Germany to start out. Yeah. I mean, that that's actually like a, a really good point because I, I was kind of thinking about this preparing for the show about the incentives and obviously that the context of these American players to come to Germany, it's just totally changed. And like you mentioned, you know, this is like early 2000s. The MLS is only like six or seven years old. I mean, these, these, these players, you know, I, you know, just even, even on my, my own, like very limited playing career is, you know, I, I met a lot of these guys who are like 24 and they're coming out of college and then they're thinking of going pro. And 
now I think in 2020, that just looks like it's like from 400 years ago, you know, like, like it just seems so yeah. outdated, but that was the norm, right? Cause you, cause you didn't have like those academies then, or you just had a couple of them starting out, but, but it, it was a whole different pathway. So, but what was, what was the incentive you think for these players like Mathis or Frankie Hayduk or, or Donovan? Like, was it always the same or was it different on an individual basis? And like, how did they kind of achieve those or they didn't? Well, it just depended on the situation. For a lot of these guys, their salaries in MLS were much lower than the salaries they would make in Germany. Uh, MLS, especially back then, just didn't pay very much. And and so it, it was certainly an opportunity for young Americans to get professional experience, but um, it was done on such a tight budget. And so... Guys wanted to, you know, sometimes it was about money. Sometimes it was also about just wanting to play in one of the, the top European leagues. And it was hard. It seemed a bit harder at the time, even to get a work permit for England. And so, you know, in, in the, I can remember in the late nineties, Brad Friedel was wanted by Liverpool and he was having all sorts of trouble getting a work permit, even though he played for the national team. And so um, I do think in those days, Germany became maybe a, a slightly preferred target because you didn't have to deal with the work permit issues as much. And uh, so we, we saw some of that, but it's still like what was happening with Americans in Germany then is not, like what we're seeing now with Americans coming over at a younger age, making a bigger impact, um, you know, and it was sort of case by case basis back, back in the early two thousands. I mean, one reason we also wanted to talk about Americans specifically in the Bundesliga and Germany is because of the relationship between the two countries. Um, I mean, there's a very special relationship um, developing after world war two, um, and I mean, Germans have always, I mean, West Germans after World War II, they have looked towards the United States and what's going on there. But also on the other hand, you had a lot of um, Americans being servicemen in in Germany. And also you got you got the Len Donovans and Craig Berhalters who moved over from from the States and came to, uh, came to Germany and uh, signed with Bundesliga clubs. But you also have a, basically a group of, players who are the, the sons of servicemen um, that that have been stationed or that were stationed in Germany for a while, Fabian Johnson and, and Timothy Chandler, John Anthony Brooks. And I was wondering how, I mean, these guys usually played for the um, for the U.S. national team, but how were they viewed? Um, how were they perceived in, in the United States? Because they were born in Germany usually. And um, I mean, it's, I guess, a different group of, of players in a, in a sense. Um, how were they perceived uh, over in the U.S.? You know, I think the World Cup team for the United States in 2014 had the greatest number of German-American players that we've seen. So you mentioned... Fabian Johnson, uh, John Brooks, uh, Jermaine Jones, um, you know, like just a, a number of Julian Green, uh, a number of those players. And I, I, and I, yeah, I remember writing stories for the magazine about that trend. And also at that time you had Jurgen Klinsmann as the U S coach who I think 
exerted a lot of influence to, to get those players on the U.S. team. So uh, in terms of how they were received, I mean, Jermaine Jones had a terrific World Cup in 2014, scored a fantastic goal against Portugal uh, in a game that finished in a 2-2 tie. And I think Jermaine Jones became a star. And I, I don't think there was a resistance in the American public to the fact that he was German-American or born and raised in Germany. Um, from what I understand, over the years, there actually were some, there was some friction between the German-American players on the U.S. team and the non, or in, in the non-hyphenated Americans on the team. Um that came out more a little bit later. There was at least a feeling on, among some of the U.S.-born American players that the German-Americans didn't feel like they were uh, American enough, which gets into a, a really complicated discussion uh, of what it means to be American or German or whatever. Um, but it is true that after Klinsman left, uh, we don't see quite as many hyphenated Americans, though we still do on the national team. I mean, John Brooks is still a part of it. Uh, Serginio Dest is Dutch-American. Just uh, you know, he announced a year ago that he was going to play for the U.S. instead of the Netherlands. And we run into that a lot in the U.S. with a lot of dual and, and triple nationals who can make a decision about what, you know, which country they want to play for. Yeah, it's. I mean, speak, speaking as somebody who's a, who's a sort of hyphenated American, so uh, it's 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 kind of an interesting thing. But but this this exists everywhere, right? Like I think I think the you know national teams are are I think a great example of what what identity is in the twenty first century and how we think of them. But I mean, in terms of Germany, there, there there's a, also a, a very rich history in the in, in the U.S. with German Americans. I mean, there's. I mean, you know, even even just 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 soccer teams, there's like German American kickers. There's all these, you know, St. Louis. Mm-hmm. That there's a lot of these hotspots in, in the Midwest, or even like, you know, uh, New York area as well, which which have a lot of German Americans, or even you know, German. So so I think that probably also you know played some uh, some factor into it. And like I I, I mentioned as, as you said about Klinsmann, which 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 was you know uh, I think people in people who followed the Bundesliga recently have have gotten their own updated Jurgen Klinsmann experience and I think that was <laughs> much much like the Americans like they kind of you know the uh, the veil has been lifted or or you know they they were kind of they, they got they got a taste of maybe something that they they might not have wanted but um the question I wanted to ask you is 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 kind of turning towards the more recent examples and this sort of newer age talents and the shifting of incentives to these players like you know at the beginning of the conversation, you, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of these players like Clint Mathis or whatever went to college and then became professionals. Now you see, you know, um, the Christian Pulisics or the Weston McKennies or, or even like the Chris Richards, they, they will come over when they're, you know, 17 or 19. Um, what do you think, what, what is like, what's the incentive there? Is it just a, you know, different changes in, in how people are becoming professionals or like, what can you give us like a little, Uh, background on that? It really has changed the role of college soccer in the development of the best young Americans, because the best ones just don't go. And it's more like the situation is 
around the world in terms of if you're 15 or 16 years old and you're one of the top American players, you're already thinking about going to Germany or playing for an MLS team until you're 18. Um, and we've seen examples now of, you know, Christian Pulisic is the most prominent one um, where he was able to get an EU passport, a Croatian passport and go to Germany long before he turned 18 and play. Uh, and Dortmund gave him a great opportunity because they're, really good at developing young talent, but also giving opportunities to play on their first team to that young talent. Uh, we're seeing something similar now with Gio Reyna, uh, who got an EU passport uh, thanks to his grandmother and was able to start at an earlier age at Dortmund. Now things are, are going very well for him. Um, so there's some of that, but then you've got Weston McKinney, who didn't have an EU passport, so he had to wait until he was 18 to go to Germany, um, but was identified by Schalke after he had spent time in the FC Dallas development system. And, you know, I, I think some of these guys have told me that they just, they saw what Christian Pulisic did and they wanted to do that. Um, and also you have other forces at work. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, the vast majority of the best young American players were going to England and not to Germany. And now Germany has totally taken over England as the place where the best young Americans go. And that's for a few reasons. One is the work permit situation has always been difficult in England for Americans, but even more important, I think is that Germany the Bundesliga gives more playing opportunities to younger players now and the English Premier League, it's hard to get opportunities if you're a young player to play. And so that's why we even see young English players like Sancho going to Dortmund to get his opportunity because he wasn't going to get that uh, at Manchester city. So um, that's, I think a big part of it that young players get an opportunity in Germany. And, uh, you know, we've seen now Polisic, Tyler Adams, uh, Josh Sargent to an extent. Um, and the language barrier doesn't seem to be a very big barrier at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, also Germans and the German Bundesliga has adjusted um, in a way that a lot of people speak English I mean, more proper, properly. Um, and even there is like a, a cultural change in Germany, you see, and especially in the in the urban areas. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, and I mean, some of the American listeners maybe will roll their eyes a little bit uh, because they know it, but I think a lot of Europeans don't know it. Um, when I do research on like Pulisic or Josh Sargent, I sometimes stumble upon these the, the names of the teams they played before they came to Germany. Because like Pulisic was Pennsylvania Classics or just just Sargent. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just quote what what's written on trans transfermarket.com uh, or so. Uh, St. Louis, Scott Gallagher, Missouri. Uh, it's like what's what's written there. So so th these are not the the names of the MLS teams. Um, could you explain how the the youth system and the academy system nowadays works in the US? And and are these like basically the youth teams of MLS teams, or is there a different kind of of system in place compared to Europe? Yeah, the history of uh, American soccer goes, 
you know, before long before MLS started, and there was a has been a club system uh, where you know Scott Gallagher is one of the the most traditional clubs in the United States, and it's in the St. Louis area. St. Louis is one of the most historical soccer cities in the United States. Uh, the 1950 U.S. World Cup team, half of its players came from St. Louis, um, and so. That system of clubs, whether it's Pennsylvania Classics as part of that where Christian Pulisic played, that system of clubs has been in place for a really long time, so far longer than the 25-year history of MLS. But what has happened is all of the MLS clubs have their own development systems now, development academies. And some MLS clubs invest more than others in those academies. That's why you see a lot of uh, New York Red Bulls Academy products doing well. Uh, FC Dallas with like Weston McKenney and Chris Richards. Um, but not every MLS team has devoted a lot of resources to their academies. So um, the club system still remains. And then the MLS academies have become their own clubs inside that system. And we've seen some, I guess some change over time with that because a few years ago, the U S soccer federation actually started something called its U S development Academy, which included the, the MLS academies, but also all of the club, the big clubs around the United States sort of in their, in a, its own league in a sense. And that changed during the, um, the pandemic uh, U.S. soccer uh, dropped the development academy, said they weren't going to fund it anymore. And now MLS has taken that over and started their own version of it. But that still also includes the traditional historical clubs in addition to the MLS development academies. Yeah, I mean, like that's that part is super interesting because like, you know, my time um, being in the U.S. and like actually coaching in, in some of the youth setups was much like, as you mentioned, the, the those kind of clubs. Like, I mean, I, I remember like um, some some of my some of the guys that I used to coach with. They, they played with a club team which which had Giuseppe Rossi, Giuseppe Rossi, who you know obviously mm-hmm. had a pretty interesting career. Maybe, maybe also worthy of a documentary at some point uh, if you're if you're if you're looking for new advice. But but um, um, I think I think what's what's interesting is that you know so, so much of this is is only known if you are in the U.S. and but but outside of the U.S. you just you know, if you're just looking at it from like a German perspective or just somebody from the Bundesliga, you you just look at these names and it's like they, they don't really they don't really, like maybe they'll know some of the MLS teams. But but what what I think is interesting is how do you scout for those? Like if, if you're one of these European clubs, I mean, it would I would imagine it would be really, really scout some of these levels Um or do you just scout the international tournaments or maybe you'll see them in, in like sort of the, the big sort of under 17 or under 15, or you just look at the national teams or even just, you know, look at uh, under 17 um, World Cup or something, or like these, these sort of premier um, cups that they'll have. Like, can you maybe shed some light on how you think you can scout some of these players? Or is there any like examples of, of say, say like clubs, like finding these, these people or these Pulisics and McKennies and whatnot? 
I mean, uh, you know, I spent time uh, with the people at Dortmund, for example, mm -hmm. and it was pretty similar how they started scouting Polisic and Gio Reyna. And that was by sending scouts to tournaments in Europe where the U.S. under-17 team was playing. Um, and that, that was a similar type situation for those two players with Dortmund. But we are starting to see other pathways scouting-wise uh, happen. So uh, Bayern Munich with Chris Richards, Bayern started an actual partnership with FC Dallas, and there were Bayern scouts in Dallas looking at the FC Dallas development players, and they identified Chris Richards and, and ended up buying him. Uh, and so, uh, that type of scouting is happening as well. So I think we are starting to see more German clubs, more European clubs, um, coming to the United States to scout. So going to tournaments, um, whether it's, you know, the development Academy or the, you know, this MLS organized Academy system, um, we're starting to see, uh, European clubs establish their own club development systems in the United States. Uh, and I think that hasn't produced that many players yet. Um, but it's, it's interesting. Like right now, the New York Red Bulls have a 17 year old named Caden Clark, who has gotten off to a really good start just the last month uh, with the first team. And, he has this sort of interesting pathway. He was with a club uh, in the U.S. that FC Barcelona was connected to, but he, and he he's from Minnesota, but somehow his homegrown rights weren't with the MLS club in Minnesota. Like they ended up with the New York Red Bulls. And now part of his contract uh, states that uh, RB Leipzig will uh, sort of, be the club that gets him uh, if he continues to show as well as he has for the New York Red Bulls. So I don't know what happened with his connection to Barcelona, but like it was interesting to see the Barcelona main Twitter account putting something out about Caden Clark recently when it's not like he's going to Barcelona right now. If he's going to go anywhere in the next couple of years, it's going to be Leipzig. Yeah, I mean, I think like that 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 part is. I mean, I remember seeing the the goal that he scored, which was like the solo solo run, which was superb. Um, but um, yeah, maybe it's maybe the Barcelona thing had to do with Sergio Des now. It's just kind of uh, marketing because I think I think there is a perception from Europe of 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 the US as this huge marketing opportunity, and obviously we know that the Bundesliga and the DFL has been exploring and i mean you know um byron have had an office and i've got a chance to visit that office in, in new york city and um so that that's always been there and you know I, it's it's kind of difficult to to judge if you are just watching from europe just to see like you know how much of this is is for marketing and how much of this for real talent but i think on the field it's hard to question that there has been just this amazing uh, American talent in in the Bundesliga and and in, and I mean in in Europe uh, as, as well. But um, can you maybe talk a little bit about? I mean, I know you you touched on this earlier about 
the perception of uh, the Pulisics and uh, McKenney's, Western McKenney's success, and maybe now Giorena's success, and and whether that's like altered the perception or whether that's like done much for the Bundesliga because you know there there's there is still sort of a, a popularity issue there or maybe that's changed and maybe you can talk on that. I mean, it is interesting. Clearly, the the top clubs in Europe and the leagues want to be bigger in the United States. And that's why they've set up these offices in the US. It's why it's much easier to see games from Europe on American television now uh, in a way that wasn't possible 15 years ago. Um, but I still don't think a, a top club is going to sign an American player unless they think he's good enough to play there. I, I haven't seen any real examples yet where like maybe we saw a little bit with like, like Nakata and some of the Italian clubs he signed with, where I, I, I think they, that was so transparent at times that it was a marketing ploy that it, that, that I looked at as a different thing. I was surprised when Christian Pulisic was sold to Chelsea for $72 million, that there was a lot of skepticism in England in particular, that Pulisic, this was a marketing thing for him. And I thought it was strange that he had to sort of prove himself even to his coach, Frank Lampard, um, last season. Now, obviously Pulisic has some injury issues, that are pretty regular, but when he's been healthy, he's been quite influential for Chelsea. There's a reason he has, has the number 10 shirt this year. Um, You know, Serginho Dest signs at age 19 with Barcelona, first U S national team player to do that. Um, I don't think that was some marketing thing uh, that Barcelona was, was doing. Um, I think also, too, when you see Gio Reyna start a Champions League game and combine with Erling Haaland for a great goal, like you, you see that and you see here's an American 17-year-old doing that, and it's hard to question that. I mean, he's, he's just really good. <laughs> so um, I think we are starting to see American development of soccer players get much better uh, to the point where, you know, like Gio Reyna spent a couple of years with NYCFC's youth system. Tyler Adams was with the New York Red Bull system for several years before he went to Leipzig. Um, even Pulisic had some time with the Philadelphia Union um, Academy before he went to Dortmund. So um, I think it's all part of a, a process that has been happening now for a few years. So like, I don't think I have people asking, like when they see Weston McKinney go to Juventus and Pulisic at Chelsea and Reyna at Dortmund and Adams at Leipzig and Dest at Barcelona, these are the, some of the top clubs in Europe. Um, I don't think that happened overnight. There was a long process that led up to it. Yeah, and maybe uh, coming to the uh, current situation, because we have now talked about Pulisic and McKinney players that have left the Bundesliga. Um, I mean, McKenney is only on a loan deal at Juventus, but there is the feeling that he will stay there and, or move elsewhere and he will ne- not come back to Schalke also for financial reasons. And 
Um, but speaking about the players that are now in the Bundesliga, and I mean, you, you named Girena, who's kind of the the star of, of the of that group, and Tyler Adams maybe. But there are also um, some players who are trying to break through. I think, and there's one is. Uh, Josh Sargent at Werder Bremen and maybe Chris Richards at Bayern. And I mean, it's probably comparatively more uh, or harder for Chris Richards to get playing time at Bayern, of course. But especially uh, Josh Sargent, I think, is an interesting example because um, Werder Bremen, they have been very careful with him and how they try to build him up and make him a starting center forward for them. Um What what is your take on on someone like uh, Josh Sargent? Is he like what's what's in your opinion his upside? And and do you think he's someone who could who could be a star player at, at a club like Bremen or even move into you know move to onto an even bigger club than Bremen because Bremen have been for a couple of years now more you know mid table region or even in relegation battles. So it's not like they will they will play in the Champions League anytime soon. Yeah, I, I mean. I got to admit, when I see Werder Bremen play, and this included last season, but also so far this season, um, it's not great soccer. Um, and and so you're you're hoping that Sargent will just get chances to to score goals, and obviously it's on him to some extent to to create that. But I know it has to be frustrating at times for him, um, and so. If you're Gio Reyna at Dortmund, which has this amazing attack uh, and wins games, uh, that's a much different situation to be in. So I, I kind of hope that Sargent isn't at Werder Bremen for very long because I, I don't suddenly see them starting to completely change as a team. Um, but I could see him going any number of directions. There's a lot of people here in the U.S. who who think Josh Sargent could and should be the starting center forward at some point for the national team. And he hasn't done enough yet to, I think, deserve that right now. But I think people think he could become that still. But I also know it wasn't that long ago that Bobby Wood was viewed as the, hey, hey the, the starting center forward for the national team. And, oh, here he goes to Hamburg. And it's going to be, he's going to be the next big star for the Americans in Germany. And that obviously hasn't happened. So uh, I, I do think there's a feeling that Sargent has real promise, but could go either way. Well, B Bobby Wood is a, is a story for itself, I guess, um, because especially <laughs> now that he's still at Hamburg and Hamburg, they try to get rid of him basically. And he, and he denies any, any uh, attempts. Um, to leave Hamburg so um, yeah that's that's an interesting thing of course I, I mean I guess with Sargent um, I, I think there's there's also the risk that he might you know because Werder Bremen they will probably again battle relegation and that he will get lost in the shuffle in a, in, in a, in a sense um, because it's it's kind of tough uh, as you said to play for a team like Werder um, and also not perform that well and not shine in any sense um, so yeah, I, I guess that there's a risk. And what's what's your take on Chris Richards? Because um, I mean, Bayern they made a couple of last minute signings um, during the summer transfer window, or was more or less a summer transfer window. It ended in October, but um, 
then they signed also Saar as a, a, a right back and have a couple of center backs. So there's not really a path for Chris Richards to the first team to get a lot of time there. Um, do you think he's he's also someone who should consider at least a loan deal or maybe leaving Bayern because there's there's no way he will break through, especially at 20. So he's you know getting up there in age um, where you want to pick up time uh, on the field instead of sitting on the bench or playing for the reserve team. I think it's a tough situation for Chris Richards because he has gotten on the field for Byron's first team. Um, most of that's been at right back, which is more a reflection of Byron's needs than what, what Chris Richards is best at. But um, I think at this point in his career, he needs to be playing. And based on what we're seeing right now, I'm kind of wishing that he had gone on loan this season. Um, to a place where even if it was in the Bundesliga, he could have played more um, because he's a really promising player. He just got called up to the U.S. men's national team for the first time. And, you know, he's shown well for, uh, for Byron's reserves, but um, it, it's, it's something where I think we're getting to a point where he needs to show that he can you know, get time in the Bundesliga somewhere and, you know, maybe come back to Bayern later on. But he's he's a, a really promising player, really good kid. And I like sort of his mentality. So I, I, I think he's still got a very good future. Yeah, like one of the things I, I was going to mention is that, you know, our, our mutual acquaintance, Adam Bells, did this really good podcast with Chris Richards' his dad. And um, that just, you know, you heard a lot about his background and I, I really think that mm-hmm. I agree with you. Like I, I was kind of thinking about Werder Bremen maybe as an option for him to, 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 to get some playing time and a team that I think Constantine and I called the, the, the worst uh, seventh or eighth place team. I think, I think they're in ninth now, but like we watched, we watched their games and, <laughs> you know, we followed them and we we're actually kind of somewhat big fans of Florian Kofeld, their coach, but it's, it's not pretty to, to watch. And the other thing with the right back situation is, I mean, you know, Bayern were in for Serginho Des for a really long time. I mean, that was a, that was a big rumor right. for, for over the year now. So there, there could have been another, another thing to, to maybe even um, get that over the line, but obviously didn't, didn't happen. Um, the player I want to ask you about, because like I, I wrote a, I wrote a piece for stats bomb in um, February, kind of tying all these players from, from like, uh, it's called, it was called No Pulisic, No Problem. And from it, it kind of examined all these players from um, like Zach Steffen, who left, and um, uh, Giorena and Sargent. But, but Tyler Adams is, is, for me, still the the enigma because, because on one hand, like his game is so refined and so mature and he... He just does so many intelligent things and he's he's like he he's always there when it's pressing. You know, he's he can play so many positions. But on the on the other hand, like I always see him hurt. I think I think now he's got a knee injury. And um I was just looking at sort of before the show that he's already had like eight different injuries uh in his almost two years at Leipzig. So what do you see him or where do you rate him rate him? Where do you rank him like what do you see sort of his ceiling and his future? I see the injury situation with Tyler Adams being similar to Christian Pulisic's where um, he just is out a lot due to injury. And I know that's really frustrating. Um, 
because I think Tyler Adams' ceiling is very, very high. I've always thought if he can stay healthy, that the way Tyler Adams arrived midseason a couple of years ago in Leipzig and became a starter very quickly and had a really positive influence on that team, I think that he could play at the biggest clubs in the world in a couple of years. But he's got to stay healthy. Uh, his game, his mentality, they've always been off the charts in terms of just how he approaches covering space, intelligence, soccer IQ. Um, he's not, I guess, a great goal scorer, but that's not often what he's asked. That's not what he's asked to do. So it's funny that he ended up scoring the, the goal that sent Leipzig to the Champions League semifinals. But um I, I like if you interview Tyler Adams, you also realize very quickly this guy's going to be the captain of the national team at, at some point, probably very soon. Um, and you just hope that he stays healthy. I mean, like I, I'm I'm surprised a little bit that injuries have been such a concern for the some of the best young American players. Um, I, I know it's frustrating for them. I know it's frustrating for the fans. Yeah, with the, with the injuries thing, I, I, that's that's one of the things that Leipzig has always struggled with. Like now, I think recently they, they've you know they've, they've actually lost a ton of people, just even center back or even central midfield as well. So this would have been actually a great time for him to for Adams to get a lot of playing time. And I I, I second the, the the part about I mean your interview with him was was fantastic, where he kind of takes you inside the Corona situation, and uh, I actually learned a lot from just kind of you know, what he, what he, what they were going through. I think it was like before a Freiburg game that you, you t- or, or after the Freiburg yeah. game that you talked to him uh, in, in, in uh, right after the break. And, and he's, he seems to be like a fascinating uh, guy and I really wish nothing but the best for him. But um, I'm, I'm also like, as, as you say, like I, that, that might be an interesting topic for further discussion of, of why why there's a lot of injuries for these players but it could just be also that the schedule is just so congested and uh, there's just injuries everywhere and it might not have to do with uh, americans at all um and i guess the last person we want to talk about is Gio reyna we i know you already you you also had a great interview with him where where he talks so much about how he i think he <laughs> needs to needs to learn how to cook and that seemed to be a more difficult problem than like <laughs> unlocking a champions champions league side and um i i really i re- that's that's one of the reasons why why um your podcast was was so good because you you get to see sort of the human side of these people and i think um just coming back to the earlier point about Freddie Adu is is maybe you know the landscape of the media is different, and we get to see um, these these people as as people and, and teenagers and people who are adjusting to new things in in the uh, in a new country, and um, we maybe can appreciate that more. And I think it's kind of our job as media to to show that side of it and not just kind of ask always ask for them from them something that they can just uh, you know that they just have to fulfill and, and kind of you know, some people living vicariously through uh, these youngsters. So I, I thought that was a really good interview with, that you did with Reyna. But what do you see with him? I mean, uh, why is he so beloved by Lucien Favre? And, and, and why is he held in such a high regard? I mean, uh, by everybody. And how do you see him as a player? I, you look at, at Reyna and it's interesting. He's He's kind of a mix in playing styles of his two parents who both played for the U S national 
men's and women's teams. Uh, Claudio Reyna obviously played in three World Cups. And, you know, like Gio's a slightly different player than his dad, but he has, you know, he's farther up the field. He's more involved in scoring goals. He's literally taller and bigger um, than his dad and has more, probably more athleticism is I think a fair way to put it. Um, but you know, his mom was a, a winger with a ton of speed. Um, and she had actually more prob- probably athleticism in a raw sense and, uh, and created more goals and, and Geo's got that in him too. But like in the podcast interview that he and I had, it was clear to me when I was just talking to him about the game, he sounded like his dad in, in analyzing the game, which is just, you know, very smart, uh, very aware of everything happening on the field, not just in relation to him. Um, and he didn't sound like a 17 year old at all. And so I think I can imagine that that's part of the impression that he has made on the Dortmund coaching staff as well is just his ability to, to be coached, to learn new things, to see the game well is way beyond his years. And that's really exciting. Um, And it makes me glad that he matched up with Dortmund, a club that has done so well over the years at, at developing young players and giving them opportunities to play. So uh, I, I'm just extremely excited about about Gio Reyna and, and who knows if he's going to be at Dortmund for one, two, or five more years. I mean, the way these things tend to go when you are a starter at age 17 for Dortmund, you typically don't stay there that long. But, um, you know, for like, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of excitement right now in American soccer circles that, you got guys like Polisic, who seems old, but he's 22, um, and and Reyna, who's 17. You know, and, and these guys are at really top Champions League clubs and very involved in scoring goals and creating goals. So we haven't really seen that in the past with at that level with American players. Sorry, maybe like different type of players because I mean, even even the ones that we were talking about before, they tend to be more sort of defensive minded or, you know, like the, the fullback center back, maybe occasion, occasional guy who will have like a flash in the pan season. And then you'll have sort of some of the more sort of cerebral or even like industrial kind of, uh, industrious, uh, midfielders. And now you are seeing this new, this new player who like, like in my conversations with, with some of the Dortmund staff who, 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 who work with them, I mean, that they always kind of, bring this mentality and coachability out. And, and that was obviously clearly the big point of Pulisic. And it seems like the one with Reyna. So, and that, that's also maybe another, an added bonus of why these American players are having success in Germany, because they just seem to be very coachable and they're, they are um, highly intelligent at a young age. And they're, they are thinking about the game deeply and, and they want to learn and they want to put in the work every day, which, which might not be the case with, you know, with, with, with some of the other players, which I think, I think if you are following like Dortmund, uh closely or even some of the other teams in Leipzig like you, you will see some examples of of people who might not ha- might not bring it every day might not have that work ethic but the thing i wanted to ask you grant is 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 
maybe beyond those guys i mean i know i know you've already mentioned a, a ton of people and and you um you know there's obviously a huge usmnt revival is there like some other players that 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 we are missing or maybe sort of a, a second wave uh, that that we are not hearing about so much or in terms of players you know i mean uh, we, we mentioned caden clark um it's funny. There's a similarly named guy named Cade Cowell uh, out with San Jose Earthquakes, who's just gotten off to a very good start to his career. Um, you know, we're seeing MLS giving playing opportunities to a lot of young American teenagers, um, and so I, I do think that will be part of the next wave, and at least gives an indication that maybe this isn't necessarily just a golden generation we're seeing right now at these top clubs in Europe, that maybe this is what it's going to be like moving forward for, for the United States. And that's what you need to do if you actually want as a country to move from the middle tier to the top tier. And that does take time obviously and and we're in the 25th year of MLS so maybe that's finally starting to to happen yeah and i think maybe the mindset behind um using or giving playing time to to some of these uh teenagers also that now the MLS clubs have realized that you know you have these players only for a little while before they might move on to to Europe and, and maybe you want to capitalize on on them um what I wanted to ask you, or we wanted to shift to uh, one other topic, because I think the narrative about you know, Americans in Europe, in Germany right now, not only about Giorena and Kristen Pulisic and, and Weston McKenney, of course, they are the stars on the field, but also with the with quote unquote stars, maybe I don't know if, the, if they are stars, but we have the people uh, on the sidelines and um, in Germany with Uh, Pellegrino Matarazzo, for instance, now someone who came up with Stuttgart, um, was promoted to the Bundesliga, and was also now recognized as one of the bright minds of the coaching game. So I think there's also, not another wave maybe, but there's also uh, now coaches from from the States who are um, making a name for themselves in, in the Bundesliga, and we might also talk about someone who's making a name for himself in Austria which is uh, also usually closely connected to Germany. Um, you, you interviewed, um, you talked to Matarazzo for your, for your show. Um, I mean, he is, he's an interesting guy, I think, in terms of like what he does technically and how he's, how he's managing the team. But what is your feeling? What, what, is he, what is he in terms of his personality? What kind of personality is he? Um, because I think he, he hasn't shown his personality so much, I think, in Germany. Uh, as, at least to the mainstream media, maybe to local media, yes. But but I think he's a pretty interesting guy. So I wanted to hear your experience, your take on Pellegrino. Yeah, I really enjoyed interviewing Matarazzo on my podcast because I had not spoken to him before that. And he has spent a lot of years in Germany. And to the point where he even said that a fair number of Germans don't even really think he's American. Um <laughs> And I don't know if that's something he takes as a compliment. He obviously still has a, a family and uh, family members in New Jersey where he's from and um, has a, 
a pretty deep connection there, but it's definitely a different situation than with Jesse Marsh because we saw Jesse Marsh play in MLS and then coach in MLS. And it's only recently in the last couple of years that Jesse Marsh went to Leipzig as an assistant and then to be the head coach at Salzburg and now be coaching in the champions league. Um, but like, you know, Jesse Marsh has been part of this culture over in North America for a long time. So I think if in a media sense, we knew more about him and, and Matarazzo's story is just getting told for the first time, but it's, it's a fascinating story. And it, it like Marsh and Matarazzo show that there's different ways for Americans to go about getting to, to this level in coaching, but there's still very few coaches, American coaches that have done this far fewer than we've seen with players. And so they're almost more pioneers even now than the, you know, than the players are. And it's clear that Matarazzo, you know, built a relationship with Julian Nagelsmann uh, that has been very productive um, and helped help Matarazzo um, advance in his career and get the opportunity to go to Stuttgart and, and do what he's done. Um, but I still think his story is sort of undercovered in the U S media, just because this is a, a recent development, him getting to the Bundesliga and he hasn't actually, you know, coached or played in the U S yeah, I, I agree with you because, like, when when I was listening to that episode that you did, and, and it was, I mean, I, I know known a little bit about him, but that's when kind of I started researching and then found some of the some of the similarities of you know the, the New Jersey and family there, but but also like you also couldn't really find anything else on him, like certainly not not in English and even 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 in German, it was it was kind of tough, and then like people were wondering, is he Italian? What is he? And you know, he's he's, he's is he actually like, a character from The Sopranos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, he, he could be right. Like, it's, it's, it's such a such a such a great name, and 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 I mean, wonderful, wonderful team. I mean, I think I think um, Konstantin and I have kind of adopted Stuttgart as, as as one of our teams for for this season. But the person I do want to ask you about more is, is is Jesse Marsh, and just sort of a quick question about uh, you know he's been linked again. It's been it's not the first time that he's linked with Dortmund and with with the expiring contract of Lucien Favre that it's seems like it would take some kind of a minor miracle to be renewed. Um, would you think like he's ready and the right fit for a club like Dortmund? I mean, he has, you know, it's now his second Champions League season with, with Salzburg and, and they are certainly, you know, I mean, after the back of last season with Haaland now, you know, they're, they've played a super exciting uh, group stage and now they're, they're three, three games, uh, through and they've already played this, this another another couple of these uh, really good games with Bayern. But with that, you think is that a right fit for Dortmund? Like how do you how do you see Jesse Marsh? You know, what's fascinating to me is, you know, I haven't talked to Jesse about the future uh, and where he sees things going. He obviously wants to go as far as a coach in in European soccer as he can, and you know, does has Red Bull said anything to him about potentially coaching Leipzig at some point, like post Nagelsmann? Cause everyone sort of assumes that Nagelsmann will move to an even bigger club before too long, but maybe not this year or next. So I think that's a big question because 
you know, Jesse's been in the, the Red Bull system now for quite a while when you add up the years in New York and Leipzig and now Salzburg. And that's something where he feels comfortable and they value him. So I don't know if, I don't know if Red Bull necessarily will just sort of sit by if it looks like Dortmund is going to take Jesse Marsh. Um, I agree with sort of your read on the, the Favre situation because it doesn't look like an extension is going to happen there. And, and maybe it could if, if Dortmund wins the Bundesliga or something, <laughs> but um, it doesn't seem like they are rushing to try and extend that contract. And, and so um, I think it's a great sign for Jesse Marsh. If he's even listed among the candidates to, to be the the next Dortmund manager, but um, and we'll see. You know, I I know Jesse really well. I went to college with him. I've known him since the '90s, um, and I think he's been very smart about how he made a lateral move. Maybe even some people thought it wasn't lateral to go from a head coach with Red Bull New York to an assistant coach with Leipzig. But that was a good experience for him and learning German and being exposed to the crown jewel of the Red Bull system and then getting this opportunity at Salzburg. I think he's probably frustrated that that Salzburg has led in each of these three Champions League games yeah. this season and has just one point. Um, but... Then again, they led in games against Atletico Madrid and Bayern Munich. Um, and they showed pretty well last year against Liverpool and Napoli. So I think people in Europe at big clubs are aware of Jesse Marsh. And I think he's an attractive candidate. And so I think for him to put himself in that situation in a fairly short time is really impressive. So you mentioned that, um, especially Jesse Marsh, because he's he has more of an of a typical career coming over uh, from the United States um, to Europe and now managing a, a European team, as opposed to maybe Matarazzo, who's kind of a unique career. But you mentioned that these guys are pioneers in a way, and um, I totally agree. I mean, there are several reasons for that. There are you know small number of coaching jobs at the professional level in, in Europe. Um, and also I think sometimes there's still the feeling that like, I, I think in Germany uh, to a lesser extent, but in some countries that like um, domestic coaches or the, the people from the domestic system should uh, get the coaching jobs because it's about the, you know, um, educating the players in, in a certain kind of way and uh, reproducing what they are, what the um, respective FA maybe uh, puts out there in terms of philosophy and tactics and so on. So maybe there's kind of that still some of that mindset, but I think in not not so much in Germany, but but in some countries maybe. Um, but coming to the point of um, these guys are pioneers, and, and you have you follow um, your soccer um, so much. So are there any other coaches you see who have the potential who could come over and? You know, take over a club like Salzburg, like Leipzig, like Leverkusen, um, and have a similar career like like Marsh. Um, are there any other coaches who have the potential to do that? I look at Caleb Porter. At he's in Columbus now, but he won a championship with Portland in MLS as somebody who is capable of doing that. I don't know 
if he aspires to do that, um, you know, his age is probably around what Jesse Marsh's age is right now. So if he is going to go to Europe, that would need to happen fairly soon. Jesse Marsh got into a really good situation with Red Bull because obviously Red Bull had teams in Europe and there was a, there was a, a, an established pathway there for him to go to. We don't really see anyone with that Jesse Marsh like profile in Red Bull in New York right now. So I, I, down the line, I could see potentially that happening again, but we aren't seeing it right now. Um, you know, you look around and there's not a lot of really young MLS head coaches right now. So, um, you know, in the ones that are having success that are younger, like Greg Vanny in Toronto, don't seem to appear to, to want to go to Europe. Um, and that's a little tough because like, if you have a lot of success in MLS, you can get paid pretty well and you're winning and your best option. If you're going to go to Europe at that point, it is probably going to be a tougher situation. Um, Potentially, especially if you try and go over as a head coach. And if you want to go over as an assistant coach, like Jesse Marsh did, that's that might be tough for some head coaches. Um, so I think that's all that's all part of it. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of when you, when you were talking about this of like being the like best Real Madrid or Barcelona basketball player and then like making the leap <laughs> to the NBA. And it's like, are you? Maybe it's not in your best interest financially and whatnot. And, the, the, you know, would you want to be the ninth, the ninth guy or something? And yeah, but, but I also, I also think that, that maybe that that could be, that could be something that these, these coaches do. And, and I, I agree with you on the, maybe there's the stigma is probably too strong of a word, but there is, there are certain stereotypes that I think still exist, and, um, and not, not just to, uh, us coaches, but even some players that, that, uh, you know, hopefully, um, These, this generation of coaches and U.S. players can uh, slowly dispel and, and, and do away with. And uh, I think that's uh, in the interest of everybody, um, just so that uh, <laughs> we, can, we can move forward. And sort of the final parting question, which um, I know you watch a lot of Bundesliga because clearly you're, you're, you're doing a lot of these interviews and you're, you're, you are following it closely. Um, has that translated i mean i know there's obviously a new tv deal with espn has, has that like from where you can see has that translated into an increased viewership or where does sort of the bundesliga uh, rank right now in sort of um u.s tv markets or even just a popular culture or how do you see that yeah i mean it's it's interesting now because you have this move toward soccer games being broadcast in the United States much less often now on cable television and much more often on pay streaming services. And so we don't always see the numbers for how many people are viewing Bundesliga games, for example, because ESPN plus is a pay streaming service and almost all of the Bundesliga is on that now. So when the Bundesliga was on Fox, it was on Fox cable channels and we were able to get weekly numbers on each game. Um, I think 
it's possible that we could continue, we could see the Bundesliga grow in popularity and the broadcast grow in popularity uh, because for one thing, the English Premier League has gotten to be more difficult to watch on American television. And uh, that's connected to what NBC is doing with their streaming service and pay tier. Um, you know, and, and they made it harder to watch like the biggest game of the Premier League this, this weekend is Man City Liverpool and it's on their top pay tier. And I don't think nearly as many people are going to see it as they would have last season. So I think that's creating an opportunity for the Bundesliga, which is on ESPN plus, which is a li- which is more, more people have it. Yeah. And you also have more young Americans playing for Bundesliga teams. And uh, I think that, that could be a real a real positive for the Bundesliga, but we'll see. Uh, you know, I wish we had more in the way of numbers right now because I, I think in general, the more you're on pay streaming services, the harder it is to create new fans. And I still think this is an immature soccer market in the United States, and we could create millions more fans, but it becomes harder than if you're putting up more barriers for them to actually watch games. I mean, for now, I guess it will take another couple of years and maybe when the television market changes again, because I guess that's an ever-changing market uh, in a way, um, especially when it comes to uh, platforms and and these uh, different models, uh, maybe the will again change because i think from a european perspective or from you know from a bundesliga perspective you saw you had the feeling that um not in terms of numbers maybe but you had the feeling that there the attention was growing but i guess that was also to do with uh that media was maybe reporting more intensely about some of the stuff that happened in the bundesliga but that has to do with Pulisic, McKinney, and 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 Reina and others, I guess. So there was maybe a false perception there. Um, but it's of course, as you uh, as you said, it's um, um, it might um change again. We we will see. Um, it's it's really hard to judge, I guess. Um, but it's at least exciting in terms of the talent that's uh, in the Bundesliga right now, and that's I mean, American talent that's all across Europe. Um, because there is a kind of a golden generation, the feeling that there there is a a great also national team that's uh, developing right now um, in front of our eyes and with some of these guys really, really young, especially Giorena um, and also Pulisic. Even it feels like he, he has been around for, for so long already. <laughs> um, so I guess th- that's really exciting. Um, and I guess also from European perspective or from a German perspective, a lot of people wish that th- the American market would grow and, and mature and also to have these American talents because they also bring a lot of energy often enough. Yeah, I guess uh, it was something especially Dortmund, Dortmund-like about um, Girena, for instance, that he, uh, even at, at 17, 18, he's already, you know, he brings a lot of energy and a positive energy. Um, and that's something that, that can help um, also and be exciting for for the game itself, but also for everything that um, is connected to, to the game. Um, so Grant, we want to thank you for all your insight uh, into U.S. soccer, U.S. football. It was great talking to you. Um, thanks for your time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Great. Um, also, to our listeners, please uh, check out Football with Grant Wall, your podcast, um, with a lot of great interviews with um, people, with journalists, but also with players, coaches, 
So you can you can listen to um, a lot of great people, and you're interviewing them, and you're really bringing uh, something that I think uh, still media misses in in the sense that um, they can show their personality, and I think that's that's exciting. And when you can listen to Chiarena and really showing his personality, or Jurgen Klopp, for instance, um, there there was also a great listener in, in my opinion. Um, so that that's also a podcast you should. If you haven't, you should subscribe to uh, Grant's podcast. Uh, he is at Grant Wall on Twitter. Arbe is at BundesPL on Twitter. I am CC underscore Eckner on Twitter. If you want to support us, please visit uh, patreon.com slash thefootballpod. And for now, we are out. <laughs> <laughs>